Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Celestial Somology, where astronomy is viewed through the telescope of biblical prophecy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this edition of Celestial Somology. Brian and I are going to be covering the Revelation 12 sign as it pertains to the woman in an entirely different light. But we need to give credit where credit is due, and we're going to do that. So we're going to have to share uh, some other people's work that are not part of any sort of ministry, and uh, they are an author, and we're going to uh, give credit where credit is due. But let's get this shindig going, shall we? Brian, why don't you share some of the historical, and I mean really recent historical, babble that has gone on with the Revelation 12 sign and how they use this to predict a purely a false biblical teaching. And we'll just start from there, because the event obviously didn't happen, because uh, we're way past any window of opportunity for this false teaching to have come to fruition. So, Brian, your, your initial thoughts, please. Well, that's... Uh... You know, if we begin with essentially what happened here, I guess this time around the ride with uh, Virgo being listed as the woman in Revelation 12, and then obviously we had the infamous uh, rapture predictions that were floating around by actually numerous people, to be quite honest, um, in line with this, but I think this goes into a bit of a twofold uh problem here and this uh, lines up with also using this as being a representation of the sign that the Magi followed in uh, at the time of the birth of Christ which you know obviously most atypical folks are planting that around 3 BC even though prior to the Roman uh, you know especially the Byzantine portion of the church starting to run the show they had the date of 12 BC was locked in with the vast majority of the uh, folks out there and that got changed as history progressed well this is on top of it one of the infamous signs that they have tried to lock into being that very equivalent of what the Magi followed but let's be sort of straight into the point here if the Magi were going to follow specific signs it would have had to have lined up with their understanding of cosmology and I think that's where we've got the biggest disconnect in here because if we start looking at ancient cosmologies and locking things in, all of a sudden a whole new picture starts to arise and one that's got a whole lot more clarity in light of what the scripture has to say concerning this. Well, Brian, I absolutely agree. And ladies and gentlemen, just so you know, you can go find my video on that. Uh, it's published on the Revelation 12 sign on the Prophetico YouTube channel. And in that, I plainly show you that what the Revelation 12 sign back in 2017 actually displayed in the heavens was a Urea crown. With that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that... The Urea crown is an Egyptian crown. This is taking us back to Joseph. This is t taking us back to Joseph's wife, not being a Jew. She was a priestess of On. This blows everything up to purely biblical proportions. What was the Magi thinking? 
Brian has cultivated a relationship with a very famous individual, and he brought up the simple item to this table, albeit an extra-biblical one, that the woman in the heavens was something entirely different, and this is proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. You can look on numerous ancient Egyptian pictography, and it stares you directly in the face. So, Brian, why don't you share that, this information that all of a sudden removes the constellation Virgo from the equation entirely and let us peer back into what the Magi was seeing in their heavens. How did they view it? Now, let me reiterate. This is extra-biblical information, ladies and gentlemen. But we have to consider all the facts. And when we do, we must realize that the facts always line up with the Bible, God's holy word. It doesn't matter if it's facts about the freezing point of liquids or the evaporation point of liquids. It pertains to condensation thresholds. This pertains. Electrical laws, thermodynamic laws, all of those directly back up the Bible, God's holy word, because they're facts. So, Brian, what do you think, after your research, what do you think it is that the Magi were actually pointing to? Uh, even if they were, because it never states in the Bible, God's holy word, that they were going after uh, a sign of a woman in the heavens. It never actually states that. So, so let's cover everything so we really get this meat on the table. Because the listeners do not need milk. They need meat. They've already gotten the milk with this rapture prediction that turns sour. Never happened. That was always false. So let us consider that, Brian, that the listeners are screaming after having been forced to digest sour milk. They need some meat. Let us provide that unto them. Brian? I would state the first spot here to start is... All right, let's get an idea of what is this uh, woman referring to as far as ancient cosmologies are concerned. And you're going to run into an Egyptian goddess that was referred to by the name of Nuit or Nut, N-U-T. And you can just obviously run that into your search engine and you're going to see the image of her that is most notably locked into the astronomy aspect of things where she's um, basically in, uh, I don't know how to describe this um, positioning she's in, um, standing on her uh, hands and legs essentially with her um, body arching over the top there. And what you end up finding out is if you take this image and overlay this over the top of the galactic rift, which goes throughout our uh, you know, the Milky Way, essentially. If you take a look at that and compare this image of this uh, goddess, you find out that they're one and the same thing. And this has been noticed by a few people working in this field over the years, and it's something that uh, didn't really gain much prominence, I would say, um, because, you know, this information has been out there for a bit of, uh, for a while, and yet, you know, this is something I just recently had come across. Now, there's arguments, obviously, into which way she is facing, but that's kind of a moot point uh, in relation to this because I think the more you begin to look at this and understand how the understanding of the ancients' uh, belief system concerning birth and rebirth and especially the role the pyramids played as being 
you know, to an extent, the best way to uh, uh, best terminology to use to call them is essentially a resurrection machine. And that's what they were basically built for, you know, and obviously if you go through the Egyptian Book of the Dead, you can even get some more information out of the Egyptian pyramid text, which obviously a lot of them are used to build the Book of the Dead. And then there's another set of text which go into uh, other odds and ends of important details as well, which are very difficult to get a hold of their translations right now. But nonetheless, when you start breaking down this cosmology, one of the major, major aspects of things here is concerning birth and rebirth. And uh, basically birth coming forth from around the constellation of Cygnus, which is represented in the heavens in various ways, most notably the atypical one is obviously the swan, but other cultures would uh, use a vulture, for instance, was uh, one representation in other areas, and then you can get the stork and some other birds along that line, depending on, obviously, regions. You know, it's going to be the type of animals that are in those regions, and you kind of get the picture as I explain this slightly here. But that's giving kind of a precursor and understanding to this ancient depiction of the woman according to these ancient cosmologies. Well, Brian, that's absolutely off the charts when we take a look at Newick and place her in the heavens with this in mind, that the swan represents her womb then you're able to project out where her head is. And you can do this perfectly uh, using the ancient Egyptian pictography. And it's absolutely off the charts when you do that. Because you're talking about being able to place her head in the heavens and what particular crown this Lady of the Starry Heaven, this Our Lady of the Stars, this Queen of Infinite Space is going to dawn for this Revelation 12 sign. When you look into the heavens and, and try to figure out what crown it is referring to, ladies and gentlemen, it's staring you literally lock, stock, and barrel right in the face. Make no mistakes about it. And with that in mind, this brings up and opens another can of worms that you're not really expecting to catch. Because Brian was doing some side research and then all of a sudden, he finds in other mythological tales something that refers directly to Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, and takes them and ties them together both biblically and astronomically speaking. Brian? Why don't you tell us about this research, where you got this research from, the uh, individual that you have cultivated this relationship with. And, well, a lot of people disagree with him, that's for sure. Uh, but there's been a lot of proof uncovered to give his theory absolute credibility. Brian? Well, this is coming from the uh, latest work of Andrew Collins, and as listeners that have been with us for the extent of how long we've been doing these programs know that I got turned on his work uh, from the Ashes of Angels quite far back, and he had a lot of mind-blowing stuff inside of that book, and that ended up leading um, to discoveries that I ended up coming across a few, probably about four, maybe five years back concerning uh, when I started uh, tracing this trail of the real Magi. Uh, his work was actually inspiration 
that led to these later findings where I ended up going down this trail and actually discovering who they really were in comparison to what is your atypical standard thought form uh, pertaining to that topic. And yes, this all ties in to this very same topic of the Magi and all the way around the board here. So, but uh, his most recent book that I just finished up the other day is called The Cygnus Key, The Denisovan Legacy, Go Back Clay Tepe and the Birth of Egypt. And look, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, he makes some extremely compelling points all throughout this book. And some of this stuff is right up there on just unbelievable academic levels here. And I mean, there's just discovery upon discovery upon discovery that was made in here that is just enough to completely knock you about 10 feet sideways. The whole entire book is just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, going back around here to what was brought up concerning the mill in Matthew 24, as Matthew had brought this up, and I need to point out something before we bring up who this mythology came from, because, folks, look, I have traced extensively this group that I've referred to as being the Magi, uh, to give a little precursor that is a Saka Tiger Huda branch of the Scythian from Central Asia. They were the ones, Saka Tiger Huda essentially means a Scythian with pointy hats. And they wear great big long pointy, for lack of better words, a dunce cap, a wizard cap, uh, gnome cap, all one and the same thing. And, you know, the big discoveries concerning them, they started finding them out in Siberia where they were finding six and a half to seven foot uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, Scythian wearing these great big tall hats, which you can see depicted on, for instance, uh, Darius the Great has it on his Bison inscription. There's the infamous drawn-in figure at the very end that was added later where you can see what looks like a seven-foot gnome standing there. Is you know, one place you can come across these depictions. But the more you start looking into this, you're going to find out these boys show up everywhere. And I am not kidding when I say everywhere, including the Americas in ancient times. And this group of people on top of it, lo and behold, well, the archaeology shows that they ended up in the Norse regions. So we've come full circle here when I bring up what I'm about to state concerning this mill and this concept concerning the uh great mill is brought out in the tales from the norse myths of the nine maidens of the mill these are giant maids who turn the world mill in other words the perceived cosmic axis or turning point of the heavens they said the great mill was larger than the whole world for out of its mold of the earth was ground from this world mill came the blueprint for the mundane world, which was thereafter made manifest by the gods. Well, Brian, when we... This is just off the charts, what we're going to have to share. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to quote uh, directly from a book published in 1885. Brown published it. Concerning this wreath in the heavens. Below the archer under his feet, let a round and a circle roll without a name. This is from Brown's work, Eratos. And what he's mentioning is the celestial crown in the heavens known by the ancients. This is none other than the constellation Corona Australis. And ladies and gentlemen, you put Newit across the heavens, and it's going to rattle your cage, because the crown that she would put upon her head is directly in the area of this constellation, which the Latin name means, ladies and gentlemen, the Southern Crown. Now, this makes everything go biblical really quick. And we definitely want to give credit, not only that, and thanks to Andrew Collins' hard work. But ladies and gentlemen, when you look up this constellation, realize where it's at. And the simple fact that 
the ancients thought that this was what was pulling Sagittarius around in a circle throughout the year. And that this is, in fact, the very type of crown mentioned in the scripture in question. Things get off the charts, ladies and gentlemen. I have shared with all of you many times that the Greek word in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, is Stephanos crown. It's a Stephanos crown. That's the Greek word in your Strong's G4735. It's a wreath headdress, ladies and gentlemen. That's exactly what's been in the heavens. Everybody knew it, including the Magi. For thousands, thousands, ladies and gentlemen, thousands of years. Now, when Brian looked into the ancient mythology about this area of the heavens being tied to the mill. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we also know that it is also known by a different group of people, ladies and gentlemen, as the plow. Now, let me read this to you. What Brian has found is that Matthew chapter 24, verse 40 and 41 actually go together in one verse. It mentions this area in the heavens as being related to the plow that the workers plowed the field with. And in the very next word, verse, it mentions women, and it pertains to it being the mill in the heavens. I read from the KJV. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken and the other left. And the New American Standard Bible. Take note that verse 40 is masculine. Verse 41 is feminine. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left. This is in relation to this area of the heavens being known as the plow. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other will be left. This is in reference to this area of the heavens being the great mill. Off the charts, Bri. Literally, the train has left the tracks and is plowing down the field at breakneck speed. This is off the rails. Brian, back to you. Well, even on top of when you consider Matthew 24, and I'll recall, people, I brought up another one of the ancient depictions of Cygnus. You, most notably, you'll see this at Gobekli Tepe, for instance, is the vulture. And once again, we go back full circle to this because, look, this is full circle to the Wings of the North, a program we did on the Bands of Time YouTube channel. Not to even mention... Full circle to Cygnus. This is the vulture. Very odd that you have these two celestial representations going on here that are also on top of it taking you back to ancient celestial representations as opposed to with starting with the Greek celestial interpretation. Then obviously we have the Roman names attached to these in this time frame. And... There's more and more details that start stretching into this the further we keep diving down this trail. But that's kind of something I'm doing here in the background at the very moment. Because as I stated, north. North becomes very important in all of this because this knowledge came forth from these people who lived in the region that was, as we refer to it, Noah's North Pole. Well, look, ladies and gentlemen, you have to take this to the bank. No one understand all the ramifications of Matthew 24. We have to pull everything into play, everything. Let's go to what Brian was referring to, the vultures. Ladies and gentlemen, just, just listen. Matthew 24, verse 27. 
For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, remember, knew its feet was touching one horizon, the Milky Way cloud goes across the sky, and where it touches the other horizon, that is her hands as her back is arched. Is this verse saying that the entire Milky Way cloud is going to flash? Let me continue reading. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Consider the Stephanos crown mentioned in Revelation chapter 12 verse 1. The Lord your God has provided all the ancient mythological astronomical data to provide to you exactly what the Magi could have been following. And this just leaves me speechless. No one understand this, ladies and gentlemen. Brian just dumped this on my head. Moments before this broadcast took place. The simple fact that, well, Matthew, one mythology on one place of the planet, they said this was the mill. And another ancient peoples in a different place on Earth they called this the plow. Ladies and gentlemen, the train has left the tracks. Brian, back to you. Well, and we still have another astronomical aspect that ties into this in a far different light than most people are used to uh, seeing this. Uh, and that, the dragon with seven heads. You know, because the atypical thought on this is obviously it's Draco, but once again, if we go back to the ancient cosmologies, it's a completely different constellation altogether, and that would be Ursa Major. Ursa Major has seven stars. So, I mean, even thoughts on that one, Matthew? Brian, this is off the rails. Ladies and gentlemen, the seven stars. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen... The dragon has seven heads. This could be a prophetic way of tying everything together so that the bride might be able to make her garments white. Now, there is another false teaching lie that coincides with this Revelation 12 sign being a sign of the rapture and the red letter heresy that states that all of Jesus' words is only to the Jews. Ladies and gentlemen, consider the very next verses in Revelation chapter 12. You are told that this beast has seven heads, and those seven heads wear ten crowns. Ladies and gentlemen, these cross-dressing wolves in sheep's clothing that are ill-qualified to speak to the Bible. God's holy word has misled you away from being able to tie these verses directly together. Think about what Brian just said. Let me read it. Just try to remember what Brian just said, okay, about these seven stars in this constellation. I shall read from the KJV. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. And the moon under her feet. And upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried travailing in birth. And pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold the great red dragon. Having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. Ladies and gentlemen, 
What does it say when these signs come together? This is what it says. This is the tribulation trigger. Verse 4 of the 12th chapter of the Revelation. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of the heaven and did cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, the next verse is in future tense. We have to remember that the Lord our God, he tells us the truth, and he has declared from the top of his voice that eschatology is isochronal. It's isochronal. This next verse, verse 5, is future tense. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Yes, here, caught up, is the Greek word harpazo. That those that are liars, that are self-serving shepherds, they lie and say that this is the word for rapture. Take note, this word here has the wrong first letter, because here, it's not an alpha, it's an ellipson. And that makes everything explode into biblical proportions, as you realize this child can only be in reference to the Moshiim, that Hebrew title given unto them in the book of Obadiah, and Nehemiah. These are the ones that Revelation chapter 14 clearly tell you are the Moshiim that are taken to heaven by God. And they alone are with the Lamb looking as if it had been slain on Mount Zion in the throne room of the living God. Take note, ladies and gentlemen, are you so sure that this rod of iron is not in direct reference to the new axis of the earth? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, let us think back to Ragnarok. Let us think back to the Isle of Man that was found there. On one side of the tablet depicts Ragnarok with the two crows representing the North and South Pole. And on the other side is depicted, ah, oh yes, the apocalypse. Look it up. Look it up. Everything truly for this episode of Celestial Somology is for your biblical edification. Brian, back to you. Well, and this is even going around to some of the... Uh some stuff that I sent you back on, good grief, July 20th. So it's been close to a month here. And folks, yes, the reason we've had a bit of a delay is I had an unexpected uh, move come up here. And we just had to move to a new uh, apartment here in the last, of course, the last month here. So that's why we kind of disappeared for a while. But to get back on track here... Um, you know, in this, uh, some of these pieces I sent you on the 20th. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me is really interesting with this Greek word for woman, uh, G1135, which, uh, how would that be pronounced? It looks like genie. Genie, is that it, Matthew? Genie, that's classic. No, Brian, <laughs> it's not genie. Uh, Remember that it's G, not not J. So it's Gini is the way it's pronounced, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yes, we're doing this show with a light heart. And uh, this also ties in. It uh, is also pro pronounced uh, similar to, as Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 24 states in the Greek, that the earth is not a circle. It's a gyron. It's a gyro. It's where your word comes for, from, for gyro. You need to understand how and why God would say that. 
because he's literally saying that this gyro, of course, has a spin point. That's called the Earth axis, Brian. So, talking about pushing the envelope. So, back to you. That pronunciation came from, because uh, in the apostrophe there, it spells it J-I-N-E-E, even though it's uh, next to it, it says G-U-N-E. But, you know, nonetheless, I find it interesting that we've got that N in there as well. It just reminds me a lot of Newit at the same time. Right, Brian. Right, 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 right. I agree 100%. I'm just sorry, but when when you said genie, I had to laugh. Well, you know, it's like I said, it made it confusing with the apostrophes, but oh well, nothing like a little good humor here time and time again. And now, another thing I took a look through here when I sent Matthew this message on the 20th was also uh, the way in which the word vulture is used um, in these uh, verses here. This is from the um, 1917 translation of the Tanakh. Um, Behold... He shall come up and swoop down as the vulture and spread out his wings against Basra. And the heart of the mighty man of Edom at that day shall be at the heart of a woman in her pangs. And then you have again the, uh, okay, this is from Jeremiah 49 verse 22. But in Jeremiah verse 48, 40 through 41, you have essentially the same things. For thus saith the Lord, behold, he shall swoop as a vulture and shall spread out his wings against Moab. The cities are taken, and the strongholds are seized, and the heart of the mighty men of Moab at that day shall be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. Um, Isaiah thirty-four fifteen through 16, there shall be, okay, there shall the arrow snake make her nest, and lay, and hatch, and brood under her shadow. Yes, there shall the, Kites be gathered, every one with her mate. Seek you out of the book of the Lord, and read, No one of these shall be missing. None shall want her mate, for my mouth it has commanded, and the breath thereof it has gathered them. Well, Brian, let's, let's bring up this fact. We have to tie this together. Why was Moab pointed out? Ladies and gentlemen, go to the last chapter in the Apocalypse of Asaph. Well, the book of Asaph. But in this instance, I'm going to call it the Apocalypse of Asaph. Psalm 83, verse 8. What does the false prophet Assyrian do? Why would Moab be mentioned here? Asher also has joined with them. They have hope in the children of Lot. Selah. Now, we have to remember that this ties right directly back into Daniel and so many other different places. It's off the chart, but this is why you had Moab come up in these verses. Please look into the chief sons of Moab and Ammon. The Lord has much to say about those two prophetic entities. Brian? Yep, the infamous sons of Lot, whom the Assyrians going to be an outstretched arm behind, hidden in the shadows. We've talked about that many times in the past. But, you know, on top of it here, the correlation, what really catches my attention, too, is when you think about the Lord is going to come back riding upon a wave. When you add in the correlations from these verses from Jeremiah 48 and 49 and Isaiah 34, it's almost as if you're getting more directional information as to where he's going to be coming forth from, Matthew. Does that seem to you like a match here? or? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, let us consult the Lord our God. Let's go right to the text. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord, he doesn't fear anybody. And he comes right out in Isaiah chapter 19 and tells you how he's going to come back and induce the tribulation. He's going to tell you exactly how he's going to do, where he's going to come from, for Isaiah chapter 24, 
dash, which is equivalent to the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. The burden of Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, where's the woman right now? This is literally a prison planet. The whole planet has become Egypt for God's faithful. Let me start again. The burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and he shall come unto Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Ladies and gentlemen, exactamundo. Exactamundo. Now, there's a whole lot more teeth on this gear of isochronal eschatology that the Lord our God has set up. Consider this. I'll bring up one point. We read from Matthew 24. You all know that. I read to you tying into the vultures. But ladies and gentlemen... What's verse 25 and 26 say? Listen. You may be told exactly where Jupiter is in the heavens for this event. That's not what I'm stating with authority. I don't know. But let us read. Verse 25, Matthew 24. Ladies and gentlemen, KJV. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if I shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth, behold. He is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For even as lightning cometh out of the east and shineth into the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eager Eagles be gathered together. Now, now, we know this is a tribulation trigger. What's the next verse? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. He finishes the verse telling you exactly, exactly when Revelation chapter 12 and this dragon sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven. He's getting ready to tell you. Let me read the whole verse. Immediately. After the trouble, the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. With power and great glory. This is. NASA has. The technical data. To give to you. About Jupiter's grand tech. About. The fifth planet. Nice model. Where literally. This prophecy. Explodes. Right off the pages. Of the Bible God's Holy Word. This is in reference to. The sign of the Son of Man. Being exactly what the Magi knew. That sign in the heavens to be. Jupiter. Ladies and gentlemen. Ask your local astrophysicists. How nervous they would get. If we all of a sudden. Seen Jupiter getting bigger. And bigger and bigger in the heavens as the Lord your God sends it once again on a grand tack to save you from the celestial scapegoat. Ladies and gentlemen, you have no need to fear. You have no need to put your stock in false teachings. No reason. No reason. Brian, back to you. Well, and that's uh, 
you know, I'm in the background here taking a uh, taking a look here at see folks because it's rather interesting and this is something I've had in the works in the background I've been doing extensive historical work on for a very long time and we have talked about for instance the infamous uh, vulture shamans up there from the extremities of the north from the Altai region um, the Buryat shamans and the Altai shamans most specifically are tied into these uh, varied birds of prey shamanic rituals not to even mention tied into the skinwalker scenarios what does that mean well they put on these skins of these animals and they shape shift into them and this is documented so thoroughly throughout these areas it is absolutely ridiculous and we even have this going on in the americas which of course we should expect that because those people from the regions of Siberia are directly related to the people here in the Americas, the native people of the Americas. So we should expect that they're going to be completely tied into one another with these religious connotations and so on. And this is where I'm looking at, because there's a lot of information pertaining to these infamous people of the North. And there's something I mentioned years upon years upon years back trying to get people's attention to take note of something because, of course, we had some information that was sort of misconstrued concerning the Assyrian and then wrapping in the beast. And, of course, somehow the angel over the bottomless pit somehow managed to find their way inside the bottomless pit in the midst of this confusion that was entered in from this teaching. But this is concerning Apollo. Because there's one specific thing the Greeks will always tell you time and time and time again. Apollo was a foreign god. It was not one of their deities. It was one of their borrowed gods that they brought into their pantheon. Where did Apollo have his root from? Well, in your ancient stories that you can even, you'll see references of this in Herodotus and in many other texts, ancient texts, to a region called Hyperborea. And what does that essentially break down to? The winds of the north. So in the background here, I'm running through all the related words to G1005, which is Boreas, which is the north. And folks, you've got this all over the place. Um, you have, with this spelling alone, oh, isn't that ironic? Because, lo and behold, these numbers also come from this same region. There's 72 matches in the Septuagint. And another two in the New Testament. And yes, folks, all of these uh, major numbers concerning uh, ancient cosmology... They come from this region, this very specific region I just mentioned, Hyperboreas. And here we have in the Septuagint, one of the main numbers in that sequence, 72, is sitting right here. Now, I just got to stop with that and digest that for a moment, Matthew. Digest it indeed, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, where is one of the times this is in the book of Revelation? Let me direct you to Revelation chapter 21, verse 13. The KJV. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Ladies and gentlemen, Luke chapter 13, verse 29. And they shall come from the east, and from the west, and from the north, and from the south. And they shall sit down. In the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen. Don't you realize that this very verse. Brian and I have talked about publicly. Oh my goodness years ago. Years ago. Because here in this discourse. It refers to the false prophet being. Let, let me say this in biblical terms. What are the regulations for 
something be established? Yes. On the witness of two. Or. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Two or. Three. Witnesses. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Let me read it. Imagine in your mind that two of these names. Are the two witnesses in Revelation. And imagine the third one. Is a false prophet. Now. You would have to know what that third name is in Greek. Because your Strong's is going to lie to you. It's going to tell you that there's no such thing in Greek. That it doesn't belong there. That that's a lie. But, ladies and gentlemen, in my case, that's futile. I don't need the Strong's. I never did. Ladies and gentlemen... That third name that I'm going to read, it does have a Greek root word that's got nothing to do with the Hebrew. But ladies and gentlemen, you already know, we have copies of the Septuagint 300 years predating the Masoretic text. That God himself removed the vows from. Ladies and gentlemen. Luke chapter 13 verse 28. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When ye shall see Abram. And Isaac. And Jacob. And all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God and behold there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last ladies and gentlemen you need to swallow that last verse you need to swallow Luke chapter 13 verse 30 and I'm going to tell you what it's going to do. It's going to be very sweet in your mouth, but very sour in your gullet. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it never says midst. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, read verse 28 again. It mentions three prophets. Yes, verse 30 only mentions a first and a last. It doesn't mention a third one or else it would have to say something about the one in the midst. Ladies and gentlemen... That name does have a Greek root. Now, I know all of you is going to scramble and go to your Strong's, and it's going to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. Of Hebrew origin. Of Hebrew origin. Of Hebrew origin. No, it's not. Brian, we're at the top of the hour. We need to close the gates on this particular episode of Celestial Somology. So, give us your ending thoughts. What is the end of these matters, Brian? Your thoughts. Well, I wanted to finish up one aspect that I kind of left hanging. You know, folks, Hyperborea. Where is that? Well, the more you look into it, lo and behold, you're going to come to understand that there's actually three very locations but those three buried locations all had the same people showing up there. The first main one is going to bring you up towards the Altai Mountains up near Siberia, up by Mongolia. The second variant within the various Greek tales concerning this is going to bring you towards Britain. And the ancient Celts that were there at a very early time. And then, lo and behold, you're going to get a third one, which is Libya. Now, I tracked this down through Robert Graves' work, The White Goddess, where he makes some very strong points and points out this last place is Libya. Now, Libya might get confusing at first glance until you go through the ancient historical texts and realize that even specifically around the time of the Sea People invasions and were happening in Egypt... Libya was inhabited by tall people with blonde hair and blue eyes. 
as Matthew and I discussed this the other day, on top of it, you see, you find a very strange um, run-in that Cyrus the Great's son has when he's heading towards uh, Egypt. And when he runs into a man there that's in Ethiopia at the time, but he goes on to describe his diet. And lo and behold, you realize that's what is referred to as the Kazakh diet from Kazakhstan. It's the only place on the planet where you're going to find the specific diet that's described there in the text of Herodotus. So now you have a threefold connotation. You've got the same group of people because, yes, the Saka Tiger Huda, not only were they inhabiting the regions around the Altai Mountains, and you can even find more information if you look into the Tokarian mummies that were found out there in that area. And they have one, for instance, uh, one of the female mummies that they recovered, they called the Witch of Subakai, where they have their infamous pointy hats as well there. These are the red-haired people that were in that region. Um, to a degree, a different group of people, but nonetheless, see, there's a little tricksy thing when you start understanding Central Asia. Tribal affiliation doesn't have anything to do with ethnic affiliation. The tribes in Central Asia... Basically, anybody was allowed to join in. So obviously, they would take in other groups of people. So that adds a little bit more understanding onto this. But taking it back around, yes, in Libya, we had these blonde-haired, blue-eyed people that were documented all over the place out there throughout the Egyptian text, most notably. And then we take it around to the early Celtic findings. And for instance, years back, as I was going through a documentary... Right there in broad daylight, they had this old gold Celtic uh, statue um, with this procession going on with, I believe it was like varied wagons with horses in front of it and all of that. But at the front of the procession, standing in broad daylight, is two characters wearing the great big uh, atypical pointy hat. As I said, folks, the more you start looking into this... Uh, this pointy hat, you're going to find out these guys showed up everywhere in the world for crying out loud. And this is where it becomes important with this work that Andrew Collins had just done. Because I've done extensive work on this, and I was not able to tie in major correlations concerning the astronomical cosmology. Andrew put the cherry on top of the cake. He was able to flesh out the things I was not able to flesh out. Now we have a complete picture. That makes this book that he just released extremely important. And, folks, I would highly advise going out there and reading it because once you start going through that in this series that we have planned in the future that I'm planning on doing on the Court of Daniel, a whole lot of dots are going to start to connect. You know, let me bring up another little correlation that ties in here from Scripture. Because we've got Boreas, like I stated, which is part of that word for hyperboreas. And this is in Jeremiah 6, verse 22, translation from the Septuagint with uh, Charles Thompson. Thus saith the Lord, behold, a people is coming from the north. And the nations shall be roused from the extremities of the earth. They will grasp the bow and the spear. They are haughty and will show no mercy. Their voice is like the roaring sea on horses and in chariots. They will draw up in array like fire for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the fame of them. Our hands are enfeebled. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pangs as of a woman in travail. Go not out to the fields and in the highways. Walk not because the sword of the enemy dwelleth all around. The folks need to remind everybody that they have proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that the domestication of the horses, Kazakhstan and Central Asia, chariots on top of it, they know for a fact, came from the Central Asian steppe tribes as well. You're having encoded to you this very specific group of people. Now, when we did our series on the kings of the East, Folks, there's a lot more information encoded concerning the riders, the colors of the horses in Central Asia. It's enough to blow your mind when you really start diving into it. And we covered it 
in one of those programs, I believe it was the one on the uh, Attila the Hun and the Hunu people from Central Asia, who was a great big void and a mystery until the Chinese records came forth, and finally they were able to put the pieces together and figure out who these infamous Hun were that came storming in in the Middle Ages. So with that said, I'll hand it back over to you, Matthew. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that everybody has a reckoning in their minds now of an alternative hypothesis to this woman in the heavens being Virgo. It could literally be referring to Newit instead of Virgo. Ladies and gentlemen, I strongly suggest that you take a look at my video that I made on the Prophetico YouTube channel. It is titled, The Sign of Revelation 12 Occurs in 2017. You will plainly see what that sign was doing was pointing you to an Egyptian Urea crown. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, God bless. Godspeed.